Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 646 with my guest, Steph Jagger. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour for those of you that are new. It is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, and everyday compulsive negative thinking. And the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, which is probably pretty obvious. But uh, I always just like to state that I am not a therapist. Um, I'm a, a person who has certainly been through a lot of trials and tribulations and done a lot of therapy and gone to a lot of support groups. Um and I started this podcast in 2011 because I wanted just to just create a a place where we can come to not necessarily have the solutions, but just to kind of let it all hang out, the ugly, the funny, the sad. Uh, yeah, you get it. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, um, what does she call herself? Oh, I don't know if I have her name written down. Oh, this is her name. PTSD, OCD, anxiety with a dash of tism. I'm not even sure what uh, the tism means, but God bless you. And she says, uh, hi, Paul, I was in an abusive relationship for about four years that resulted in PTSD and a dissociative disorder. I'm now out of the relationship. Good for you. And I've been dealing with what feels like a never ending episode of derealization. I've not heard many people talk about it and was wondering if you ever thought about having a guest on that either is a professional who treats DDD, which is depersonalization, derealization disorder, or someone who has it. I'm seeking help with a psychiatrist and therapist, but any advice helps. Uh, P.S. Your show has been one of the things I listen to on the way to work and going home every day, and that has kept me present and grounded. Thank, for, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for for saying that. I, I I appreciate it, and I have not had a guest on with that um, particular disorder. Um, we've uh, my very first guest was uh, a friend named Janet Varney, and I believe we did we ever repost her episode? No, she returned to the podcast, and um, she uh, has a disorder that's kind of a neighboring disorder. In the name of it, I'm I'm totally blanking out. And, right now but um it's a great idea all of that is a a long way of saying i love your idea of having either a professional on who specializes in it or can speak expertly about it or someone who suffers from it so thank you for putting that on my radar this is an awful moment filled out by not by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as oldpeoplefucking.net. And uh, that's a little bit of an inside joke. Um, I wonder if they listened to Jimmy Pardo's podcast because I think that was the podcast where I revealed that during a bout of mania in the late 90s when internet domain names were uh, expensive, like $70 per year per domain name, I had the... (laughs) hypomanic epiphany that my financial secure uh, security um, was going to be uh, made by purchasing every domain name I could think of uh, that people <laughs> might be interested in. And I went $35,000 into debt. And one of the domain names was not just oldpeoplefucking.com, 
but oldpeoplefucking.net because I thought somebody's somebody's going to try to backdoor me on that name. No, uh, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, but yeah, oof, oof. So they're awful some moment. A week after my husband left me, I was climbing the walls. We were in a codependent relationship for six years, and when he left, after cheating on me, it was as if he had taken away my drug supply. I was rattling for a fix that only he could fulfill, and I felt like I was going to die without him. I was completely crazy, doing anything to distract myself from the fact I wanted to kill myself without him. I hadn't slept or eaten since he left, and I couldn't keep still. For some absolutely insane reason, I decided I was going to go to the local self-service car wash and clean my car because even though I had never done anything like that before, I was desperate to just keep myself busy, to stop myself from obsessively texting him. I pulled up to the self-service car wash. It was in the parking lot of a supermarket and one of those where you use the jet wash yourself. It was a late summer evening and I was the only lady-shaped person there parentheses, I'm non-binary, but the world reads me as a woman. I was surrounded by taxi drivers, teenage boys, and middle-aged men. I felt incredibly intimidated, but I wanted to push through, do something I'd never, I would have never done if my husband had still been there to take care of our car. I was trying so hard to convince myself I didn't need a partner. I put a few pound coins in the machine and attempted to begin hot shampooing my car. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing, but I began to brush the soapy foam all over my car, and after a few minutes, I noticed I was actually removing some of the dirt. I smiled, proud that I was doing something for myself. I felt a glimmer of hope. Maybe I could be on my own. Up until then, I had never so much as put petrol in my car, relying on my husband to do it for me. As I scrubbed and scrubbed, it dawned on me Maybe I would be okay without a partner. Maybe I would survive. I rinsed off the shampoo and stopped for a break, putting the jet wash down to admire my handiwork. Not bad so far. As I was about to resume cleaning, the machine beeped and the jet wash machine began blasting water, soaking me from head to toe. I desperately attempted to control the flow of the hose and direct it away from me, but it was too late. My white jumpsuit had turned see-through, my pink underwear clearly visible through the material. The pressure of the jet wash made me cry out loud and attracted the attention of every dude in the parking lot. All eyes were on me and some of the guys were cheering, some were laughing. I felt hot tears in my eyes and I scrambled to get back into the car. I felt so humiliated and awful and I wanted my husband more than ever. As I screeched out of the parking lot, I made eye contact in the rearview mirror with one of the creepy taxi drivers who had checked me out. Wait, was he kind of cute? He was one of the guys cheering, so I obviously thought I was hot. I considered turning around. I went to my first 12-step meeting for sex and love addiction that night. Fan-fucking-tastic. Thank you for that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this was filled out by, um, I believe she identifies as a woman. I don't have that page here, um, but she calls herself Janie Two Hats. And uh, what were or are your issues or struggles? 
And uh, she writes, a lifetime of low-level depression and anxiety punctuated by hypomania and periods of acute misery, suicidal ideation from middle childhood, multiple attempts including one requiring hospitalization and a psych ward. Um, Also, I had a meltdown at work. A colleague and mentor advised that I should sort myself out because otherwise my past would keep coming back to bite me every time I got stressed. What helped you deal with them? Feeling bereft of hope for the future over Christmas 2022, I decided to engage my brain by writing. What came out was a 57,000-word memoir. This cathartic process helped to underscore some life events that I had known were traumatic but never fully appreciated as such. It put things in perspective and uncovered some new memories that brought the overall picture into view. I would recommend this process to anybody who needs to piece things together. From there, I needed to level out my negative demeanor. My bitterness was tainting everything that came out of my mouth, and I was conscious of affecting work colleagues. This is when I found your podcast. It distracted me when I most needed it and opened up my awareness of how many people feel the same way. It offered humor, honesty, and community to my tortured soul, and I began reading some of the books you recommend. Dr. Janice Webb shone a spotlight on the breadth, depth, and subtle nuances of the spectrum of childhood emotional neglect. And she's speaking about the profound book that uh, Janice Webb wrote called Running on Empty. Uh, This made everything clear and made me realize that my upbringing lacked boundaries as well as lacking love, affection, validation, and self-soothing. It wasn't just the authoritarian directive to achieve in life above all else. Also, the work of Bessel van der Kolk and Gabor Mate has further shown me the impact of trauma on health and well-being. Lisa Feldman Barrett revealed that physical displays of emotion Uh, are not universally recognized. They're simply what we're taught in our society and can therefore be unlearned. Elaine Aron, or is it Aron, A-R-O-N, helped me to understand that I'm a highly sensitive person, not just a broken doll. Next, I went on a mission of holistic self-care. I've cleaned up my diet, removing the sugar that was destabilizing my mood. I've tried diaphragmatic breathing, in the parentheses, Wim Hof method, and Soma breath work. And I've also been learning to meditate. I even went for a massage in an attempt to reconnect to myself and the body I've spent a lifetime ignoring. So I'm still in my job, but I'm now open to the idea that I can be comfortable without the stress of promotion. I might even be confident enough to move on one day. I'm seven weeks into an online MSc in psychology, which is a fabulous tool for getting the brain working on something new. This is hopefully creating some new neural pathways rather than cycling round and round in the same old ruminant bullshit. I'm still a long way from, quote, home, unquote, but the pathway is clear. These are the tools, physical and mental self-care, diet, mindfulness, and some form of spiritual practice or meditation. Self-discovery, find out what the problem really is, name it to tame it. Acceptance progression, start working on something new, something you enjoy, and get your brain focused on something different. Thank you, Paula, for being part of my journey of healing. Thank you for sharing all of that, man. That's some that's some fucking badass. That that is uh 
that's like Olympic level diving into the solution. And I uh, just want to high five you, salute you. What 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 form of validation do you prefer? A hot air balloon? Maybe one of those airplanes that write. I would do that, but I'm afraid I'm going to write it backwards. And then you would think that I was cursing you. And then this is the last one before the interview with Steph. Uh, this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Roxy about her depression. She writes, there's an anchor attached to my heart that pulls me down. About her ADD, I have to do everything right now or set it in a pile to die. It's so good. Uh, about her anxiety. Everyone can see how bad at this human thing I really am. About her alcoholism and drug addiction. I can't keep the monster from consuming me unless I keep it fed. Uh, about her codependency. Please just tell me I'm worthy of still being here. Um, and about being a sex crime victim. If you don't think it counts, that's what they were hoping for. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our willingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with Steph Jagger uh, And we're gonna talk about something that... that we really haven't talked about that much. I believe when I interviewed Karen Kilgariff years ago, she talked about uh, her mom uh, having Alzheimer's uh -huh. and that that. First of all, so sorry that that you. you and your mom Thank you. had to had to go through that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a it's a topic that I'm like, oh, it's gonna make me so sad. I don't, I, I don't want to talk about that, but I know it's so important because there's so many people who have loved ones who are going through it. There are a lot of people who have loved ones going through any type of cognitive decline, the, the kind of umbrella of dementia under which Alzheimer's sits, and. I, you know, it is, it can be excruciating. Like there's a lot you confront. I think one of the most unique things in my experience about Alzheimer's is that you're not only watching the person that you love go, that's very similar to a lot of degenerative diseases, but you're also watching them lose you, which is a very unique experience inside of disease. Normally you're just watching you lose them right. and it's kind of simultaneous. Right. You know, that being said, Paul, I I listened to a, a podcast a while back that had uh, Brandi Carlisle, the singer. Love her. I love her. And she said something that has really stuck with me that I've held on to, which is, I'm going to mess it up, but mysticism is the most practical thing in the world. The only thing about it is it's found smack in the middle of grief. And so I've thought about that. Like Alzheimer's is not a quick thing. This is an endurance this is a Spartan of a disease. Yeah. And so I've thought about how do I be present to, how do I move through this as much as possible with like a conscious grieving approach as opposed to an unconscious despair? 
And the more and more I stay present to myself as well as my mom when I'm with her, the more and more, to be frank, kind of magical things I see, like I get to see my mom as she would present as a six-year-old. Like I remember being 20, 25 years old and thinking, God, I just wish I knew my mom. I wish I knew her when she was a teenager. She doesn't understand me at 20. And I get to see her as a teenager. And how do you know when she's presenting herself as the, the, the well, teenager? Or just give me some slices. I'm just going to move your water yeah, a little absolutely. bit. Here's the perfect example. I went in to visit her. I was with my dad. They're high school sweethearts. I went in to visit her. I thought, gosh, connect. This is she's in late stage Alzheimer's now. Connection's going to be pretty tough. This could be a pretty excruciating. Does she recognize you at all? She doesn't. No, this is well beyond recognition. And so I thought, you know, music. I've heard that music for people with Alzheimer's and dementia is really important. So I brought out my iPhone, pulled up the Beach Boys. This is her, like, you know, they graduated high school in 1965. This is her music of when she was a teenager, when she was dating my dad for the first time. And my dad kind of puts his hands out and she stands up and grabs him and they start dancing. And so I'm watching them dance. That alone was just fantastic. But this was the icing on the cake. They turn around and I see her face resting on his shoulder and she flicks her eyebrows up and down a couple times like hubba hubba to my dad. And I just thought, that's it. I just saw the 16-year-old her dancing wow. with this cute guy thinking, whoa, whoa. I, and she know. didn't know it was her husband. She did. She didn't. She. It's very right. fluid, it, right? Yeah. It's very fluid. But. If I wasn't going through this process of wanting to be really present to what I was, I would have missed that. I wouldn't have played the music. I maybe wouldn't have gone in to visit thinking, what's the point of visiting if she's not going to remember who I am, you know? And I, I just, that's my deepest encouragement to people going through this disease is, is if you are able to, and I know that's a hard thing for a lot of people, but if you're able to maintain the kind of state of conscious grief, like being with your emotions instead of pushing everything off or denying everything, and and really be there with your loved one, boy, there's some things that you can see that I think are, are real gifts. And so are you experiencing grief at the same time as you're, you know, being touched by this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think grief for me throughout uh, Alzheimer's and dementia has shown up in probably three different ways. Uh, first, I would probably describe their, a sense of what I might call acute grief, um, an example of that might be the first time that she didn't remember my name. You know, there's an acute pang of grief, of sorrow, of rage, of a whole kaleidoscope of emotions. And at her in general, just just inside of me that I can feel. Gotcha. Um, and so my process in that is is again, I have a, a kind of a stance of wanting to be present. Like, okay. I have all of these wildly uncomfortable emotions in my body. What do I want to do with them? And what do I want to do with them while I'm in front of my mom? So there's choices for me that I make. That's a lot. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. And so in that moment, I just remember like it kind of took my breath away. I just remember being like, how do I – I don't now want to scare her. Right. That she doesn't know who I am. Calling so her an I... idiot out of the question. Well, it's, it, it just feels out of the question. Or like <laughs> quizzing her or reminding her, which is such a natural thing to do. Yeah. But to kind of take out anger or take out rage, like she she doesn't know, right? So I just remember being like, um, you know, I saw her in the hallway of our house and she was like, hello. As in, I don't know who this woman is in yeah. the hallway of my house. Yeah. And I thought, oh, Hi. 
I'm going to go down and have breakfast right now. Like I didn't, I just kind of tried to redirect us to an experience. And then later that day, I probably phoned my husband or phoned my BFF or talked to my dad and was like, woof. That was a lot and had to process that, right? That's acute grief. And if she asked you who you are, what did you say? I'm your daughter? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't remember a lot of times that she quizzed me, who are you? I know there's probably a lot of people who would have that experience. I did have that experience with my grandmother. So my mom's mother also had dementia. She had classically presenting old age dementia. And I remember visiting her a handful of times and her asking, who are you? My response to that, to people who are listening, is it kind of depends on the tone that it's asked. If it's asked as, who are you? Like, who are you in my house? I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I might kind of back out of the house and just say, you know, I'm a a person who knows you, or we've met a couple of times before, or something like that. If they're curious, like, who are you? I might say, like, I'm your daughter. How wild is that, you know? So it kind of depends on the tone and the space that they're in. When she's asked you, who who are you, and you say, I'm your daughter, what is the range of her reaction, both what she says and kind of her body language and her emotion that's visible to you? It could be wildly different, depending. For instance? For instance, um, I remember one time when we were on the road trip that we took together, and, and I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm your daughter, and she immediately then went to like, okay, where are your kids? And I had to be like, I don't, I don't actually have any kids. I think she was maybe thinking of my sister. Mm. So there's, she's, she, my experience of her in those, in those scenarios is that she's really trying to piece everything together. And my job isn't to insist upon something or correct her if something is wrong in that piecing together but to help her make a puzzle. It doesn't have to even be the correct one. How do you keep your battery from from being drained? Or, you know, I suppose this would be a great question to ask your father yeah. as well, yeah. because the logistics, I imagine, of something and the frustration yeah. that you might feel... Um, yeah. Must must be overwhelming on a bad day. Yeah. I mean, the answer to the question is sometimes you don't. Like sometimes you don't keep your battery charged. Sometimes it dies and you get frustrated or you get angry you or snap you, I mean, or you are might, short. Yeah, like are short. Or, and I, I remember a handful of those occasions and they're just – those are heartbreaking to, to digest because you just think oh – my, I remember, I remember my – I snapped a little bit once at her. I was frustrated and my husband was there and he was kind of – he gave me a look that was like – get yourself together. And I was like, okay, you know, that that happens. And that's yeah. going to happen, especially with a disease like this. Um, on the flip side, you know, there are tools that I use. Um, I have a strong support system and network of people who are, I think, also wanting to be conscious to the world and actively processing and digesting emotions. Um, writing is huge catharsis for me for people to read or just in general in general in and, general and steph has a, a a book out and i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you yeah. uh for some stories from it but it's called everything left to remember and it's uh about a trip through the rockies yeah you took yeah. with your mom after yeah. she had been diagnosed. yeah after she'd been diagnosed so yeah and that that leads to another thing is you know i'm a i'm a big fan of spending time in nature as a way to kind of mirror our own you know wild interior and 
um, and kind of settle our nervous systems. I think movement is great. I think meditation is great. I mean, there's a lot. I think therapy is great. I think and EMDR was abs- kind of discovered right? while a woman was walking along a trail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I really, I'm, I'm a big believer in all of that, and I, you know, invest. Uh, in a variety of different ways, time, resources, et cetera, in, in those types of um, ways to digest the experience. And again, as you said, like, you know, what kinds of grief? Like there's the acute grief. I think Alzheimer's and other degenerative diseases are interesting as well because they come with um, a, a bit of ambiguous grief as well as anticipatory. Like mm. there's grief in the moment, but there's also grief of like, I know this person is still here and I'm kind of strangely and anticipating. it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse or different. Different, you know? yeah. So, so there's a, there's a whole um, you know mess of stuff in there, and maybe that's a, you know another way of recharging the battery is kind of understanding nobody's going to go through this perfectly. There's no roadmap, and I think that's so important to keep in mind for anything, whether it's healing from trauma, uh, you know, whatever it is, to give yourself, uh, you know, some some breathing room to to be human. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever own what you've done and and make amends to people, but to to go, okay, note to self, I didn't handle that ideally. Because for me, so much of life is just about what's the ideal tool. I really like the word ideal mm. rather than good or bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And that, you know, that goes back to the idea of like conscious grieving versus unconscious despair. And you asked about my father, like how, what are his, you know, what are his tools? I think this is really important in this in this category of, of disease is that there is typically, not always, but typically a primary caregiver. So somebody who's much more hands-on with the person who has Alzheimer's um, than, say, the rest of the family. And so in, the, in my family, that was my father until my mother was moved into a care home a couple of years ago. To expect that the person who is in the throes of being the primary caregiver is simultaneously engaging in all of that work, plus maintaining their income, their, their regular life, plus moving through conscious grieving is too much, right? So I, I remember moving through that stage, particularly with my dad and thinking we're going to be at different places in regards to our digestion of this experience and the grief, et cetera. And I have to be really okay with that because he's in the throes of figuring all of this out and how to get my mom to continue going to some exercise classes and what what was the communication that needed to happen with the community center to make sure that that was all okay and there was a lot on his plate so that's a different thing for the primary caregiver and the the facility that she's in uh i imagine they're quite experienced in dealing with people they are with this they that's, are. That's, yeah she's she's at a care home in in vancouver specifically in a memory ward you know and i was talking with a real friend of mine who who is involved in that industry and i was asking him a bunch of different questions and he said Steph, you know, it's a really unique experience because we don't know the people before they come in, obviously. And we see relatives that come in who are really sad, really unhappy because they're like, this isn't my mom. This isn't my uncle. This this is so sad. And they're really focused on who the person used to be. He said, but for the most part, we meet these people as they come in and they're funny and they're engaging and they're excited to do the activities and you know they have these personalities and like they're really amazing people i think a lot of people who haven't experienced what you've experienced and i suppose it would depend on the person who's suffering we we just imagine that they vaporize yeah and yeah Yeah. and that there aren't any 
yeah. parts of themselves left. That are, yeah. And I have, you know, heard some stories of people where uh, the patient turns mean yes. and aggressive mm-hmm. and paranoid and there's nothing really kind of yeah. Yeah. To, to connect to yeah. in a way the, that feels good. Absolutely. There are presentations of the disease that are that are uh, really unique, like someone's personality can really shift and, and that's excruciating to navigate. We've been very lucky, I think, with my mom that she's, you know, there's, there's been moments of frustration for her, but generally speaking, she's been a pretty content um, person as she's moved through this, which is speaks a lot to her ability to move through things with surrender and grace and the presentation of the disease. Yeah. Um, the, there's a, yeah, I, I think that's a really unique part of that is to kind of go in and think, who am I going to be meeting yeah. today? And, and how do I process that? And, but I, I, I really took that lesson from my friend who told me that is like, right. If I'm focused consistently on who she was and not who she is in this moment, that's my experience has been that leads to more pain for me. Wow. And that's such a profound insight. Is that something you arrived at yourself or did you get that from support? I feel like ancient Eastern mysticism is like, that's the main message. I don't know. I feel, I feel like I've arrived at that myself. I've arrived at that through conversations with friends. I've arrived at that through therapy. I've, you know, all suffering is, is being wanting to be in a place that you are not, you know? And so to kind of go, okay, we're in this place. Mm -hmm. And my, my parent, my loved one is uh, maybe presenting as frustrated today, or maybe they are, you know, just, you know, not, very available today. I think that's another thing about this disease is, you know, our society really, really thinks about humanity and what makes us uniquely human as I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely a really unique part of, of who we are, of, of what makes us uniquely unique, really unique creatures in the world. And we feel, therefore we are, we sense, therefore we are, we perceive, therefore we are, we engage with energy in the world in uniquely different ways. Like it isn't just our mind. And when the mind goes, it's really easy to convince ourselves like, well, they're gone. There's nothing. What's it worth? There's nothing left. And my experience with my mom has been that that's not the case, that there's actually quite a lot of her left if I'm willing to kind of slow down, tune in and feel my way through the energy of the room if that makes sense yeah i mean yeah. boy that that is bringing uh some spiritual tools to bear right right i mean we feel this you go to a music concert and you feel moved by the music now you might not be thinking did that note of c strike a certain <laughs> chord in me and move me it's not it's a thought process it's like no that's not on board that's we're allowing ourselves to engage using our senses, using our intuition, using our felt animal bodies. We're, we're engaging with the world and that that's still there. So that's been an invaluable tool as I've gone in to visit her. Talk about um, what your relationship was like with your mom and your dad growing up. And in particular, if if your relationship with your dad has changed since your mom has uh yeah. Ex- experience this. Yeah, this is a really good question. So I, I grew up in a in a house that had um, pretty traditional gender roles. Um, and, and I grew up in a house that had a lot of 
safety and consistency. You were raised in Vancouver. I was raised in Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we put an extra U in every word that we spell. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I grew up with a a lot of, you know, mental safety, um, physical, financial safety. Like there was a lot of consistency. And so what I like to say is that I come to the table with a lot of nervous system privilege because of that. You know, I've got a pretty regulated nervous system because of the way that my parents raised us and because of the way their parents raised them. Despite being a Canucks fan? Despite being a Canucks fan. Exactly. <laughs> my brothers would laugh at that. So that that really was the experience growing up. There, the, the, the one missing component that I think I struggled with was as a kid that was really highly sensitive and highly emotive that language and the translation of that world for me and my family was missing. So a lot of that emotional landscape got a bit swept under the rug. And we just were happy little achievers. That's what we did. But we didn't really feel or we didn't talk about what we felt. Right. Right. So when I think about um, your question in regards to how has my relationship changed with my dad, you know, my dad and I have always been pretty close, like two peas in a pod more so than my mom and I. My mom and I were close and it was a warm relationship and a wonderful relationship, but we weren't like best friend, There wasn't emotional but depth There to wasn't it. a huge emotional depth, no. My dad and I are, you know, we're pretty close. And I think throughout this, you know, I'm really proud of us. You know, we've we've done a dance. We've We've challenged each other in different ways. We've supported each other in different ways. Um, I think out of anyone in the family who would have the emotional language, it probably would be him. Um, I, I have said, and I, and I still believe this, that, you know, when you have a parent that you're losing to Alzheimer's or dementia and, and many other diseases, there's, if your other parent is the primary caregiver, there's a grief that you're, you're almost simultaneously losing both, at least temporarily, because there's a, there's a person that's just consumed, rightly so. I mean, that's a lot of work and a lot to move through, a lot of their own grief. And so I, I felt as though there was probably five or so years, if I think back, that I that I think, okay, this feels to me as though both parents are gone. And I think in the past two years or so, really since my mom was moved into a care facility, I feel, oh, there he is. He's coming back. Mm-hmm. And, and our relationship is, you know, kind of coming back on board in different and new ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really proud of him. Um, I think he's moved through this with a lot of, a lot of grace. And um, it's a really challenging thing. As I said, it's like the notebook. They were high school, they're high school sweethearts. Like this is, yeah, it's been, it's been excruciating for him. And one of his, one of the tools in his toolbox, bless him, is, you know, he's a silver lining guy. He's he mm-hmm. always since he was young, ever since I was born. That's all I remember is there would be troubles. There would be tough times. There'd be stuff with work or financial things or you know, just things going on in life. And he was consistently a person that was driven towards finding a silver lining, not necessarily bypassing right. his own emotional landscape, but kind of like, OK, that's not great. How do we make it better? So I I admire him for that. I think that's a really, really helpful tool for getting through life. So uh, give me some, some moments with your dad um, where that exemplify um, an emotional connection or lack thereof with him, especially in difficult moments with right, your during, mom. Right, during this time. Yeah. 
this would be these are great examples. Um, I, I remember, you know, she would maybe be three or four years into her progression. Typical Alzheimer's progression is, you know, eight to 15 years. So fairly early on. And he would, they live up in Canada. I live down in the States. So they would come down for a visit. And I think he needed a break. And I found during those visits, he was very distracted. Like he was like a teenager on his uh, app. Like just couldn't, needed a break and couldn't engage Mm -hmm. with the world in the same way that he normally would. And so those were, that that was the primary way that I think that presented, you know, okay, this is a person who rightly so cannot be present and attuned like that, that, that idea of attunement with her or with you, um, with, with the world. Like, it was like, I think in his head, it's like, okay, I'm going for a visit. I'm going to have two days. I'm going to have stuff to help out with mom. I can like, this isn't conscious, but like, I can probably just check out and he probably needed that. Mm, Okay. You know, so those were, that's that's a primary example of, okay, he seems more distracted. He seems more focused on his phone, not necessarily when it was just him and her, I think, but um how natural like mm-hmm. yeah yeah and any any moments where you felt a connection to him and you felt um like i don't know there's a deeper bonding uh over absolutely. your shared absolutely i mean i think the primary one for me is really um when when the book came out so he was the first person who got early access to any pages. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, as I said before, they're high school sweethearts. So if I'm writing about her, I'm writing about him. I mean, their lives mm-hmm. are, you know, in lockstep since they were 16. So he was the first person who got pages. And I think when when he had sat with the pages, had time to digest, I remember a particular phone call that he was like, I don't know how you did this, but you you her voice like i was reading the dialogue and it's she's it's like she's right there and what a gift to think mm. i can go back and read this anytime or our grandkids who don't who won't know her can go back and yeah. and and think okay i have photos of her i can see how or maybe even some videos here and there but to be able to read her voice and so that that kind of thing was really profound i i think of capturing her and honoring her in that way i think felt like an honoring to him as well and i think created a deeper bond for us and was that one of the uh reasons why you wanted to write the book was was to document you know i i did not think i was going to write a book about the trip we went on i when we were on the plane home she was sitting beside me with an adult coloring book and I found myself like madly typing notes in the app uh, mm-hmm. on my phone. And as soon as we landed, I thought, oh, shoot, this is I think this is going to be a book. I think. Had you ever written a book? Before? I had. It was my it was my second book. Okay. Yeah. And I I think for me, there's a process of catharsis of, of writing um, the, the way that writing projects come along for me are very typically not. I think this is book material and I'd like to make it a book. It's like the book knocks on your shoulder and it's like, you, you, you better, you better get to, that. you know, like you yes. better get to work. Yeah. So I feel like the book chose me 
And that's exactly what yeah, Chanel Miller said. Yeah. yeah. And, and you just do your best to translate the story that's there. I think that's for me as a creative, that's one of the most amazing things to think I'm writing about my own life. And yet it feels like it's also coming from somewhere through else you. through me. Yeah. yeah. And that's such an exciting thing to have happen when you can be surprised by your own story because yeah. you're letting it come through you as opposed to thinking the narrative and yes. crafting the narrative, and controlling the narrative. Yeah, and intent when it comes to art is so, so important. I think so yeah. often we, many of us, think of the end result first and, and instead of just saying, uh, oh, this is going to be involved, uh, this is going to evolve as it comes through me. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's especially interesting for memoirists because they are writing about their own life and mm -hmm. it can be easy to be like, oh, this is the narrative and this is the control I want to have over it instead of kind of relinquishing and saying, okay, there's there's more, there's something larger, there's a different energy. And, and again, as a creative, that kind of playing with that kind of energy, regardless of even if it gets published or read, or I mean, that's, that's healing, fun. Um, there's, a, there's an inherent sense of belonging inside of that for me, because it feels like you're both alone, but also with other energy. Um, so all of that is uh, worth it for me. Yeah, yeah the, the feeling when the universe is uh, expressing itself through you is one of the greatest feelings in the in the world. You know, writing jokes or or music. A lot of people will say, you know, do the prep work, but the <laughs> leave the door cracked open to let God right? come right? come in. Like. How much of you is there embodied, able to put your hands on, you know, either writing something out or on the keyboard? And how much of you has to kind of get out of the way to let yeah. something bigger come through? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the writing process. But, you know, going back to this whole conversation, for me, that's, that's also the process of life and grief. Yeah. Like how much of me needs to be there to really feel this? Because I'm a, a human being having a human experience and I don't want to bypass. I want my my the trauma in my body to be processed so that I can bring more and more and more energy through. If our bodies are really full of that, that's full of trauma, full of unprocessed pain, it becomes, uh, I don't want to say harder, maybe I'll say less sustainable to run that kind of really big energy through. Mm. Yeah. So give give us some some stories from the trip with your mom yeah. through the through the Rockies. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh, the whole thing was was really unbelievable. I, I think one of the main stories that stands out in my mind, uh so so we went through a variety of different national parks. Um we camped, we went horseback riding, we went whitewater rafting, we were quite adventurous when we were out there. This is a woman in her late 60s in the early stages of Alzheimer's who was very fit, very capable. So she was really capable of doing a lot of these things. A lot of people, when they hear I take someone with Alzheimer's out, you know, horseback riding, they're like, ooh. <laughs> um, but she was, you know, she's a young, young woman doing this. And I think one of the things that, I, that stands out in my mind so much, there was an experience we had when we went to Old Faithful, which is a geyser, a really famous mm -hmm. geyser in, uh, in one of the national parks. And, you know, everybody goes and gathers around to see the thing, you know, shoot up, shoot water up into the air. And it happens, you know, very consistently. And so everybody gathers and we're there and we see this thing and the guys are 
blows and it's amazing and everyone's clicking their cameras. There must have been a thousand people on that day just watching. And then, you know, the geyser settles. It's dormant mm-hmm. for however long and everybody trickles back to their cars or goes to see the other things in the park. And I remember I said to my mom, I'm just going to pop in to use the bathroom. Are you okay to, you know, sit here for a little bit? She said, yeah. So I rushed in, used the washroom, came back out. And I just, I, I have a picture of this in my head. She was, you know, wearing a red sweater. A person was beside her. She was sitting on a bench, just staring at the now dormant geyser. And everybody else had gone. And I thought, she's she's staring at what a lot of us would call nothing. And she's transfixed. Like, she's staring at some kind. She's I don't know. Is she having a conversation? There's some kind of beauty. There's an exchange happening. And I thought, that is it. That's the lesson. Like, we can make our life about trying to chase moment after moment after moment of of something powerful, of something very beautiful, of something extraordinary. Or we can pause every now and again and maybe find soulless, longing, beauty, meaning inside of something that's banal, inside of something that's those ordinary. Are my favorite, those are right? my favorite moments right? beca- because they're also more doable. Yeah. But it's hard to get into a mind frame where you can truly feel them. You yes. can intellectually go, oh, what a beautiful rose go- growing in my backyard. Right. I, I, you know, right. This is the first time in two weeks I've even noticed that right. roses are growing. Right. But when you do, when you can feel that it's such a good feeling and it reminds you that um uh that we don't have to just sit and wait for the universe to uh have us no. win the lottery like, or find exactly, the perfect partner exactly. we're like an active participant i actually there's a part of me that wonders like is that one of the kind of strange bizarre bittersweet gifts of the disease of of dementia is that it removes the ability for the mind to do that and it really does place someone in a moment that that that's all there is mm-hmm. is is them and what they're sensing and what they're feeling and i don't know that that always stands out in my mind as 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 such a good lesson not only in life but also how to navigate what was going to be the continuation of the disease with her is like, can I do that? Can I sit with her in what looks like nothingness Mm -hmm. in her dormancy, in her ongoing dormancy and engage in an energetic conversation or just sit there and enjoy the fact that her hand is warm today or that's, that was, that was a really powerful moment then and continues to be as we navigate um, the later stages of the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother uh, had pretty severe Alzheimer's that came on, I think, in like her 80s. She, li- she lived to be early to mid-90s. But there was one thing that a story that she told over and over again was really heartbreaking. She was seven when her mother died. They uh-huh. were at church and her mother collapsed and died. Uh-huh. Um and she would retell this story uh-huh. over and over again. Uh-huh. And um, I just, I, I always wondered, is that a common thing for mm. people to, and it's not like she was acting like she was six. Right. And it, and right. it happened. She would right. just re, retell this story. story. I mean, you know, we would patiently listen, listen as if yeah, yeah. we were hearing it for yes. the first time. Yes. But I wondered what mm. was going mm. on internally. 
Um, I mean, isn't that the question? That that I think is. I think we make a lot of assumptions about what happens internally for folks with with Alzheimer's and dementia. That there is just a fading or a nothingness, and I'm I'm not sure that that's actually the case. Yeah. But I I you know that's a, that's a fabulous question. We were just talking about that. Like these large diseases, you take heart disease, you take cancer, you take Alzheimer's. You know these these are colossal things. Diabetes that that our society faces. And there's a part of me that wonders. I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't. I play more in the energetic realm mm-hmm. um, and the you know kind of mystical or philosophical realm. And so I don't know the answer to this. But I but I do have a curiosity. You know, is is heart disease a societal mirror of the ways that our hearts have had to close off to like survive through this cruel world? Is is cancer a, a mirror metaphorically of the ways that we have ingested toxins in 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 the earth and the, you know what we've been doing with that? Is Alzheimer's a a, a, co- a collective response to generation after generation of like you just need to forget about it and move on? Like the seven year old little girl who sees that in her mind, you know, okay, sweet, you just you just we got to forget about it and move on and mm-hmm. just build your life anew and don't think about it. We don't have to talk about it. You know, there's there's a lot of advice from those generations that that is sweep it under the rock and move on and and my grandmother never talked about anything emotional she was one of the most emotionally reserved people that i've ever ever met yes and so there's there's there is a question for me um in regards to that is is that a is this disease a a collective response to that advice that Mm -hmm. let's just forget about it and move on instead of let's talk about it let's process it let's feel it to heal it let's Mm -hmm. you know all all of this different all of the different kind of approaches that we have now that that we also experienced moments that were you almost felt guilty for laughing but she (laughs) she said to me once she said um she turned to me and she said what are you going to do about the fish Uh uh-huh and I said, what fish? Uh-huh. And she said, oh, you know. <laughs> I had no idea no what idea. she was talking right. about. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I mean, there's countless, countless times that are, you, I mean, I don't know, was it Carol Burnett that said, like, all comedy is tragedy plus time? Absolutely. Something like that, I, right? She, if she didn't, I, I, somebody did. Somebody did, did yeah. right? So this is exactly it. I mean, I have countless experiences with my mom where, you're, where I'm sitting there going, I don't know whether to burst into tears or burst into laughter. You know, she had this little stuffed monkey that she would hold, and she genuinely was convinced it was, like, alive thing and it was so sweet and she would talk to it and you know kiss, kiss give it little smooches and be like oh you little baby like talking mm-hmm. to it in this way and then i remember she turned to me at one point very concerned like just so concerned on her face and she said is it is it deaf does it not because it wasn't responding to her and i thought this is both the saddest thing i've ever seen and also i want to laugh like this this Almost experience like a with this stuffed Python monkey sketch, you know right? yeah like it just Oh, it, it was just wild. And there's countless. There's absolutely countless times. Give me a couple more. Times. Oh, I mean, there's times where we've said, okay, we're all going to you know, get ready to go in the pool or the lake and we've got to put on our bathing suits and off we go. Hey, mom, do you need any help? Nope, I got it. And out she walks with her jeans and her t-shirt and her bathing suit put on over top of it, like ready to go. You know, there's, there's, yeah. there's situations like that that are, um, again, in the moment you're kind of like, okay, this is, this is really sad, but also very comical. Yeah. Um, there's a fabulous uh, charity, Seth Rogen and Lauren Miller Rogen, 
Um, it's called HFC. That's that's for Alzheimer's and dementia awareness. And it used to be called um, uh, HFC. What does that stand for? Uh, Hilarity for Charity, I think, was yeah. the original name. And it is. It's it's. Then they have experience in their family with this. And I think it's. You have to laugh. Like there is so much in life that is that includes gravity. And is hard. And if we don't have levity to balance it, oof, that can be a tough place to stay. I, I beg the listeners of this show to fill out the surveys that are lighter, or, or, or especially what we call awful some moments where it was awful at the time, but it's kind of awesome yeah, as you yeah, look back at yeah. it, just in terms of how absurd yeah, absurdity, it was. Yeah. And those are the, the moments that I thirst for yes. in, in life yes. in general, but yes. especially for the podcast because it can get so heavy Oh my gosh, sometimes. absolutely. And you know, if you think about it, absurdity, I love that word. Absurdity was a word that Joseph Campbell, um, who was a... He was brilliant. Right. And that was the word he used as like, that's a marker for the moment of a invitation into a call to adventure. Is like, what is happening right now that's absurd? And if you can recognize absurdity and kind of move into it, yeah. you're, you're going to go on an adventure. Who knows what it's going to be, but... I, I think that's a fabulous thing to keep an, your eye out for is that kind of absurdity. There was speaking of, of camping, there was a, a, a moment I was five years sober and I wanted to kind of celebrate it by going camping at my favorite camping spot in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And I couldn't find anybody to go with me because it was during the week or yeah. I'm dislikable. I'm not sure which one, <laughs> but I was feeling, you know, great the first 12 hours. And then this family camps next to me and they're everything my family never was they uh -huh. love each other their uh -huh. dog is well behaved <laughs> the son who has the physique that i wished i'd always had catches the biggest fish that's uh -huh. ever been caught in yeah, that stream yeah, yeah and i'm sitting there and i'm getting sadder and sadder <laughs> and i'm and i'm grilling a hot dog on the grill uh -huh. and i look up and i you know see them all all laugh together and uh -huh. i look down and my hot dog has rolled off into the dirt <laughs> And at that point, I laughed, and all yes. the sadness went yes. away. Yes, I, that is. It's absurd. There you are with your little wiener on the ground. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it was, great. It's yeah. great. I mean, I packed up my shit and left yeah, about exactly. two hours exactly. later, but I did get that yeah. that laugh yeah. out of it. It's great. Yeah. That's such a fantastic moment. Yeah, yeah. and it's you have to. You have to be open for those and search for those and, yeah. you know, hang on to them when you find them. There, there was a moment that I, I like to share with people who are going through grief that I think is kind of along the lines of, of what we're talking about. And I apologize to anybody who has heard me share this story before. But um, when my dad died in, in 06, um, I had just broken my ankle uh -huh. and, um, and I had to travel back to Chicago for the, the funeral. And and one of the things that I had been employing in my newfound sobriety at that point, I think I was three years sober, was what you are talking about, mm -hmm. which is trying to be present, mm -hmm. trying to say, you know, let's not assign, you know, this is all bad yeah. to it. Yes, yeah. I'm going to miss my dad and yeah. this sucks and et cetera, et cetera. But I thought I am going to, for this weekend, the traveling, being there, I'm going to look for moments of yeah. beauty. Yeah. And as I was packing, um, because you know my ankle was in a cast, as I was packing, I realized I only have to pack one shoe. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, that yeah. to me is yeah. kind of an, right? an analogy for right. the best tool I can bring to bear when life throws me a shit yes. sandwich. Yes, exactly that, right? God, I only got to pack one shoe. Good. Yeah. Only have to figure out how one shoe matches with the rest yes. of the outfit. Right. right? It takes up less space. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's been there's there's lots of those. There's lots of those examples of, you know, how do you how do you move through these kinds of really really challenging experiences. I, I remember having a really profound moment of realization, you know, in the midst of thinking, gosh, my mom doesn't remember who I am. And then all of a sudden it, it occurred to me, there's, there's grief inside of that, but I was also strangely, or maybe not strangely, like kind of flooded with relief of, of kind of thinking, oh my gosh, I can, I can be who, like, I can be whoever I want to be, like gone now or all any expectations I was carrying to fulfill my mother's dreams, any, any, any of those. Who that, are you? I'm an astronaut. Right? Like, I know. <laughs> right? So, so it, I mean, th- there's, there's such a beautiful kind of both and that happens uh, inside of these experiences. I think there's a lot of people that just think an emotion has to be one thing. Like, I either just have to be, if, I'm, if mm-hmm. I go into sorrow, that's going to be it. Right. And most of life for me, as I've moved through my own work, has been kind of removing that binary and finding, you know, where can I cry and laugh? I mean, that's that's, that's a court jester archetype, right? It's, yeah. it's the face of the of the laughter and then also the crying beneath. And that, that how can we hold both in our hands at the same time? It, I think that's it, a beautiful. It can be question. hard in, yeah. intellectually to do it, but I, I think, you know, as you've said, if we can just try to be present in yeah. that moment and, yeah. and just be open to what is yeah. rather than I wish it were this way. That's which right. Is, that's right. Which is one of the, of the fundamental things they teach you in comedy improv. Uh, that's, it, that's it. That's absolutely it. The yes and. Yeah. Right. That's a fabulous. It's actually a really phenomenal tool for Alzheimer's and dementia. So when your loved one says, I don't know who you are. I think you're the dog's babysitter. You're like, yes, and I'm going to take him out for a walk right now. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a great so, tool. I think a lot of people would say, oh well, that you know, that's that's lying to the, to them, um, and that it seems like you would be missing out on a lot if kind of that was your. I, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it must be very confusing for the person that doesn't know that that is an option because they would feel like I'm yes. being disingenuous. Right. I'm tricking her. Right, right. You know, I think that's such an interesting thing when you think the reality of the person who is experiencing uh, Alzheimer's and dementia is is kind of shifting, right? Sometimes they think you're their daughter. Sometimes they think you're the dog walker. And so if you if you're in a situation where I ask you, you know, what did you have for breakfast today? And you say, I, you know, I had an English muffin with some peanut butter on it. And then I ask you again, what did you have for breakfast today? And you say, I had an English muffin with peanut butter on it. And I say, no, you didn't. You actually had whatever. That doesn't feel very good in your body. Right. And so maybe you actually did not have that. But what what does it matter? Like the right. the, the, rea- the landscape of reality is. It's shifting all the time. You know, I, I get in a conversation with, with my best friend all the time. We talk a lot about, you know, where society is having like a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. And and the landscape of, of Alzheimer's and, and dementia is their, their reality, that what their imagination is telling them what's going on or the, the way that their brain is putting together what reality is, is different all the time. And I think it's helpful and sometimes even playful to go with it that makes sense yeah um and it must be difficult when you're feeling completely overwhelmed and especially 
if somebody doesn't realize they have control issues. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's as we said before, you know, there's times when you, you don't do that with grace. You don't do that. You you just know you get upset. You leave the room. You know, we're having this for lunch. No, I don't want to. Yes, we're having, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, not dissimilar, I'm sure. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a parent, but I've got lots of nieces and nephews. Like it's, you know, not dissimilar to those moments with small children. Um, but we we keep going. We keep trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Steph, thanks so much for coming by. Your book is called Everything Left to Remember. And where can people find out more about you, get the book, find you on social media, etc.? Yeah, yeah, books are anywhere. We love supporting yeah. independent bookstores, but you can really find find the book anywhere, libraries, uh, online, etc. Um, I am on Instagram at Steph Jagger and online at StephJagger.com. Pretty easy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Steph and I was so so surprised at the end of the conversation that I felt uplifted. I thought I was going to feel all bummed out when I had booked her to to come on the show. I was like, well, I really should uh, talk about that topic, but it's going to make me depressed and people aren't going to want to listen to it. And I'm sure there are some people that won't want to listen to it, but those of you that have gotten this far and have obviously listened to it, um, I imagine are surprised, as surprised as I was, how how she was able to see so much beauty in something so so painful. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Boogie Monster. And she writes, I'm in a situation I need some advice. My sibling is a long-standing addict. I've been around addicts my whole life, and I'm a psych nurse who works with them. But this is a little different because now I'm in a situation, and I feel I did the right thing, but I got a phone call that I didn't think was for me from my sibling, who's, uh, who was sounding really fucked up, making no sense, sedated. I don't think they meant to call me. I had to let my parent know. I'd cut them off a long time ago, realizing that they were a toxic person in my life, but we were trying to mend. But I cut off again after this. We're now in our deep 40s, and I think enough is enough. And I assume there are all these references is you're talking about the the sibling that is uh, still in their addiction. Um, uh, we're in our deep 40s and I think is enough enough. Well, they tried uh, to reach out the other day to see why I've been ignoring them. I told them straight up I didn't appreciate that call. It shook me. If you need help, let me know. But otherwise, uh, dot, dot, dot. They went, went on to say it was pot. Dude, I'm not dumb. Then of all people. I thought you would understand. Understand what? Then it went to, I think it was laced. Again, I called them out on that. Uh, now my parent is involved and says that they are disappointed with me and they're not talking to me. My parent agreed that they believed something was going on too and stated they called my sibling out on it as well, but that they understood that relapse happens. Um, happens in... Understanding that, yeah, happens. And understand that, yeah, I think that was a typo. Uh, I understand that, yes, relapse happens. But it's been every few weeks, every few years, months, and no treatment is sought out. Just let it ride? Am I losing it? Am I being gaslighted? And in my situation, do I stop trying to reach out to my parent? These are all really, really great questions. And I think your instinct is... uh, right to to just distance yourself 
from the, from this toxicity. Your parent doesn't get it. And, you know, as they say, addiction is a family disease. It is not just the individual because to accommodate, especially when alcoholism and addiction runs through generations in our family, personalities are molded to accommodate the addict, uh, you know, to compensate them by leaning on the child to be the parent that isn't available because they're getting high or physically not there or emotionally not there. It's super, super, super complicated. And in my opinion, for there to be any kind of hope for stability and intimacy, all of the parties have to be willing to look at what their part is in contributing to this by the role they have adopted, whether it's enabling or like the sibling manipulating to avoid having to grow up and and get sober. Um, and, and you ask, do I take the next step or just step back? And I say detach with love. And the most important thing I think is for you to get help because it is not just that your parent is sick and that you're sibling is sick. If you were raised in that household, there is also a sickness inside you. And I'm not, not, not saying that you're broken, but a learned way of behaving that, um, that affects us. Um, and, and I think you would be amazed to find out how much of the work that needs to be done inside of us has nothing to do with the other people. Uh, because Growing up in that environment, it affects our self-esteem. Um, it affects how safe we feel navigating the world, how we trust other people, um, who we think we need to be to be loved, on and on and on and on. But I think your instincts are definitely there that... It's time, it's time to pull away and let people be mad. You know what they say? <laughs> I love this saying. Uh, when people pleasers stop people pleasing, people aren't pleased. <laughs> and I'm sure your family's going to get mad at you, but they're adults and uh, they will learn to cope. And who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll change um, and things will be different in the future, but if nothing changes, nothing changes. And it doesn't sound like anything changes is changing on their end. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled, <laughs> filled out by a jackass who calls himself Seymour Butts. I can't condone that. I cannot condone an adult man calling himself Seymour Butts. And yet, you're kind of also my hero for doing something so overtly stupid and childish, then I'm going to throw a parade for you this Saturday. He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s. He says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he does not elaborate. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, I know it's not supposed to matter, but I can only listen to episodes with a female guest. Guest. I would never see a male therapist either. I think it's because males remind me of my dad who was severely depressed and emotionally absent and also a psychologist. So I can't really imagine a male who would be sensitive and caring. 
You know what? I, I, I relate to the thing about I've always preferred female therapists, and I suppose in some way I'm, I'm trying to fulfill that void um, that, that I felt from my mom. But there's also a void from my dad. My dad was totally emotionally absent. But um, I, whatever your preference is, man, I, I, I don't think there's anything anything wrong with you preferring to hear a certain kind of guest or or having a certain gender therapist any positive experiences with abusers uh covert incest from my mom that's a positive experience darkest thoughts i fall asleep thinking about being back in high school um and being caught by a caring female teacher while i was self-harming at school Darkest secrets. I can't really think of anything. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Stepmom, stepson. I hope this fantasy is normal. Dude, it is not only normal, it's cliche. (laughs) I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm just letting you know, buddy. Uh, You you are quite normal. And and I, I even dislike using the word normal when it comes because, you know, is there really any normal when it comes? I, I, I kind of prefer the word common. Common or uncommon, but that doesn't really necessarily mean, you know, it's if it's uncommon, it's it's immoral or weird or etc. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would go back in time to when I was four. I was crying and my dad got mad and told me I was too old to cry. He sounds like a terrific psychologist. I would like, like to stand up for myself. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to cry. Have you shared these things with others? My girlfriend knows and she supports me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Please accept your feelings as they are. It's okay to cry. Amen. Amen. You know, if you've never been to a support group for a lot of us, that's where the tears bust open. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about that, but man, the right support group, ooh, floodgates open. This is from the love survey filled out by Docile Dumpster. And I love when a, when a dumpster is nice and, and docile. I, if there's anything I hate, it's a feisty garbage can. I don't think I'm alone on that. I love when it rains really heavily overnight. I often run to the door and watch it come down so hard, I barely see the house across the street. Then the next morning, I go for a drive, and what were once fields are now small lakes where birds are floating and doing that cute, fluffy, washing themselves thing. I guess it's like going to a water park for the day for them. I love when people tell me I'm amazing at my job. I work for myself, and it's such a great feeling to have my customers appreciate the hard work I've put in. I love sucking on a polo. Do you guys have polos in America? I think I know what you're talking about. I think those are they're the chocolate with kind of the caramel center. I could be wrong. Um, or it's a cock hanging out in an alleyway. Either way, delicious. Um, right? Uh, that's a stupid question, or maybe it isn't, because sometimes I'll mention a very regular thing to an American, and they are so confused, like a tin of baked beans. So I do love, so I love sucking on a polo until it has gotten so thin and delicate and just one little section melts away so I can put it on my tongue 
or lip like a fun minty piercing for a few seconds before accidentally have it fall out of my mouth because I never actually seem to be able to eat anything without making a mess. I love lazy days in bed, watching Nicolas Cage films and ordering in because I don't want to leave the cozy den I've made for too long. I love spring when I see the first bluebell or daffodils come out. I love that my dad is now one of my best friends. I never thought we could heal, but here we are. Oh, dude, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Actually, I don't know if you're a dude or not. Oh, person. That's so beautiful. I love the sound of your voice, Paul. So soothing with a touch of cheekiness. You always brighten my day. Not sure if that's exactly what I mean as you're often talking about sad subjects, but hey, fuck you. And I get the I get the spirit that that fuck you was delivered with, and I accept it wholeheartedly. Thank you for those. Those were beautiful. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself that bipolar chick. That has got to be one of my favorite sitcoms. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 9 or 10 years old, my mom's boyfriend invited my mom, my 4- or 5-year-old brother, and myself to soak in his hot tub with one stipulation. We all had to get in naked. It was my first experience with seeing a grown man naked. I haven't, hadn't even seen my own father nude. He then proceeded to grope my mom, and she didn't stop it. A few few days later, I was left alone in his house with him, and he told me to take my clothes and get in the shower with him. Luckily, my mom came back at the right moment before I actually had to get in. The water was already running. I told my mom what happened, and she blew it off that I was just trying to cause trouble. Oh, my God. Uh, she has been physically abused. When I was about 40, I was in a six-year horribly abusive relationship with a man who suffered from terrible, untreated PTSD from 15 years in prison. Everything from a backhand across the face for not making the bed the way he does to holding a sawed-off shotgun to my head because I wanted pizza for dinner. Being a two-time felon, I knew calling the police would mean the end of his freedom for the rest of his miserable life. Looking back, I should have thrown his ass in jail." any positive experiences with the abusers. My ex could sometimes make me laugh. He could be funny when he wanted to be. Um, Oh boy, he put the shotgun down a riot. He was a riot when he was not armed. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I would like to round up all the exes who used me as an object and shoot their dicks off. I know it sounds childish, but I'd gain great satisfaction in knowing that they could never simply fuck another woman and leave them as empty as they left me. Actually, she she, she typed as empty as I left me. Um, I assume that that's a typo, or are you being, uh, um, getting all metaphysical and uh, profound. Darkest Secrets, I was involved in a three-way with my best friend and her boyfriend. I did it because there was plenty of alcohol involved and my friend begged me to do it. At the end of the night, I went home feeling very dirty and empty. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having a man actually make love to me. He would be attentive to me and show me that I am a human and the act of intercourse, not just an object or a depository. 
Writing that makes me feel very empty inside, knowing that at my age, this man has still not shown up. There must be something seriously wrong with me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my ex that the PTSD he has caused me, uh, I have gotten help. I really hope he has too. Otherwise, I really hope he's dead. I say this because I will never, ever be anywhere near him again. The very thought of of his voice makes my skin crawl. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that all of the therapy, medication, EMDR, and consistent work in a 12-step program, parentheses, 18 months sober, high five to you, uh, would bring me the man I would finally have a healthy, loving relationship with. I think that is a... doable and beautiful and human wish to have my wish for you is that and it sounds so fucking corny is that you give yourself what you're looking for another man to give you obviously there's some things you know uh the physical touch and and other things but in terms of emotional intimacy and self-care um i think it's really important if if we have the I don't know, not the obsession, but if, 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 if we find ourselves just longing, feeling so empty, wanting for somebody to care for us, that is a, a flag, a red flag for us to start caring for ourselves. And again, I know it sounds cheesy and new agey, but it's so true because I've been through that. I've been through that where I wanted someone to fix me, and I spent decades in that lonely place, wishing other people were different and and me not doing the work to give myself the things I wanted other people to give me. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, you know what? Go fuck yourselves, all of you, each and every one of you. I don't know where this New York guy came in from, but I'm putting him on a Greyhound bus and sending him right back to the Port Authority. I'm so bad at accents. Have you shared these things with others? No, most of these things are so far out there, people would think me simply crazy or desperate or both. I could not disagree more. I think there are so many people who could relate to what you feel and what you've been through. I think you would find your family, and I think life would feel different. For me, I needed to be loved unconditionally in a place outside of a relationship, outside of a romantic relationship, for me to begin to feel that I was worthy of setting boundaries, being nice to myself, thinking, what what do I like to do? What do I want want to do? Um, you know, and not that I wasn't incredibly selfish in other ways, but um yeah. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel free of them. They're out there. They've been written and spoken. Time to put them in their proper place, which is the rear view mirror instead of the windshield. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I appreciate you. Thank you for that that survey. I, I really think you would be a valuable member of a support group. 
This is from the love survey filled out by, <laughs> I love this name, what's going on up there? Uh, I love when I have to shimmy into pants because they won't go easily over my butt. I love when it's that time of the year that makes the sun go through my window at the right angle that goes across my desk at 6 p.m. Or maybe they, maybe they mean 6 a.m. I'll get to the bottom of that. I love when you call someone's name from far away and they do a little spin to see where it's coming from. Oh, that's such a great one. I love when children insist on climbing things that aren't meant for climbing. And I love when frosted moss has a crunch to it when you step on it. Oh, those are so good. Those are so good. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by um, a genderqueer person who refers to themselves as Aisheth. They uh, identify as uh, sexually as queer. They're in their 30s. They say they were raised in a totally chaotic environment. They were victim of sexual abuse and reported it. I was molested by my next-door neighbor when I was five. I reported it to my mother. She told me I was lying, so the abuse continued for three years. It progressed from him touching my vagina and having me touch his penis to him making me perform oral sex on him and him performing oral sex on me to full penetration. I used to take his hand and lead him to the bedroom, acting like I enjoyed it, to try and keep my little sister safe. That is one of the most heartbreaking images I think I've read. Good Lord. Uh, that didn't work, however, and when I was eight years old, my little sister reported what happened to my mother. Luckily, he only touched her, nothing worse, and she was so young that she has zero memory of it, and she immediately called the police, etc. I broke down because of this, because I had told her, and she accused me of making up stories. Uh, they've been physically and emotionally abused. My ex-partner started off lovely. However, a month after we started dating, he physically assaulted his ex-wife in front of me. I justified it because she was smoking meth with their two-year-old daughter on her lap. A month after that, he hit me for the first time. I was working as a sex worker at the time to support both of our drug habits, and he began to emotionally abuse me because of it. He would tell me that I was a worthless junkie whore, and I didn't have him. And if I didn't have him, nobody would want me, and so on, until after three months, I quit working and began dealing drugs to support us. Around this time, he ramped up the physical abuse. He used to hit me, kick me, hit me with weapons. Once in his car, he pulled over to the side of the road and held a knife to my throat. He broke my jaw, broke four ribs, broke my nose twice, gave me so many black eyes it wasn't funny. Then I got really sick and was diagnosed with a serious autoimmune disorder. And the day I found out that I may only have a year to live, he changed the locks and left me stranded in a shopping center, car park, at 10.30 p.m., accused me of lying about my illness, even though he was with me in the doctor's office when I received my diagnosis. I was so fucked up by him, I tried for three months to get him to take me back. Wow. Wow. Any positive experiences? My ex and I had plenty of great times together, which honestly just makes me hate him even more. Darkest thoughts. I want to kill people. 
I want to kidnap someone and torture them for days, hours, for hours, days, weeks. I want them to, to know that they are going to die, but for them to have to endure pure agony before they do. Darkest Secrets. When I was 21, and in parentheses, I am AFAB, which stands for Assigned Female at Birth, I had sex with a 12-year-old girl. I didn't know she was 12. She told me she was 16. I found out two weeks later when her dad rocked up to my place while she was hanging out with us and getting high. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want my husband to drug me so that I am completely unconscious. Then, while filming all of it, I want him to throw me to the ground and kick me around. I want him to fuck me in all of my holes with no lube. I want him to get a knife and carve his name. I'm I'm realizing now that I probably should have said something that this survey is pretty intense at the beginning of it, but I imagine you have all... Uh, that is all that is dawned on all of you at this point. So apologies. Um, I want him to get a knife and carve his name into my skin so I'm forever marked by him. Then I want him to drag me into the backyard naked and bleeding and throw me into the dirt and masturbate over the top of me. And once he's come, I want him to piss all over me. Then I want him to force me to watch the video the next day while beaten, bloody, and bruised and he fucks me as hard as he can. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell the man who raped me as a child that even though I've been diagnosed with a myriad of mental illnesses, he hasn't ruined my life. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my husband and I to stay married for all of eternity through this life and the afterlife. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my husband, including the sexual fantasy. How do you feel after writing these things down? A lot better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you share these thoughts or feelings, you're not a bad person. You are morally challenged, but who gives a fuck? Man, you went deep. You went fucking deep. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing all of that. I imagine a lot of that stuff was really, really hard to not only think about again, but to have to form sentences to to talk about. And then finally, this is a, a series of happy moments filled out by a trans man who uh, calls himself Liam. And um, he writes... Um, I left my job as a caregiver and med aide at a nursing home a couple of months ago. The stress and emotional labor were taking a toll on my mental health. All of my co-workers at the time admitted to thinking about leaving on a regular basis. It's simultaneously the most brutal and tender job I have ever done. I was good at the job, too. I had a reputation for being willing to take on any task and spend as much time as necessary on the care and well-being of the people in my care, something that unfortunately is not very common in long-term care facilities. I visit every week. I visit two people in particular. Both tend to be lonely and neither of them get out of bed very often. For their privacy, I will refer to them as Janice and Betty. It is honestly the highlight of my week when I get to see them. 
When I ask Betty what she's been up to, she always puts on a mean face and says, trying to stay out of trouble before busting up into laughter. She does this because when I would see her rolling out of the dining room, I would tell her not to go jacking cars because I wasn't going to bail her out of jail. There was one time that I had to confiscate a pair of scissors from her because she had started to cut her hair in the dining room. On more than one occasion, I had to break up fights between her and other residents. She also has a habit of collecting napkins, used or unused, doesn't matter to her, and stuffing them in her pockets. She will not let anyone throw them out. In order to keep her from stuffing large quantities of napkins under her bed covers, I opened a garbage bag to hold them. At one point, she asked me if I would push her through the halls to sell the napkins to the other residents at 10 cents apiece. I never did that, but she ended up sleeping with them at the head of her bed for months until one day the housekeeper became thoroughly disgusted with the contents of the bag and threw them out while she was at an activity. She was very angry for a few days, but she very quickly started a new collection and began amassing a new collection of assorted used and unused napkins. Um, uh, Betty is very much an extrovert and took the COVID lockdowns particularly hard. She didn't eat even before the lockdowns, more on this later, but during them, she would even stop drinking water or asking for her coffee. So every night before I went home, I would help her into her wheelchair and we would go for a walk. And at the end, I would make her coffee and we would sit in the empty dining room. Betty does not eat food. She claims that she can't because she doesn't have teeth, and this is partially true, but she will even refuse foods like mashed potatoes and soup. On a few select occasions, she's eaten cream of wheat or drank some broth from chicken noodle soup, but that was it. Her entire diet consisted of one glass of whole milk, one glass of V8 juice, one glass of apple juice, and a cup of coffee with an ass load of brown sugar, like four to six tablespoons of brown sugar. This was breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Until one day she decided that she wanted to eat muffins. Since then, her diet has been muffins, whole milk, V8, apple juice, and coffee until a few, with a few nutritional shakes thrown in here and there for good measure. Shortly after I started working at the facility, a man who I will call Eric moved in. Eric was married but moved into the facility alone because his wife could not care for him. But still, uh, uh, he was fully independent. Uh, he was a big man, rough around the edges, and really didn't talk much, but he was very funny and nice. Betty, ever the tramp, cozied up to Eric. Betty saved a spot across the table from her at every meal and would chew away anyone who even attempted to sit in his spot. She would slide her glasses of juice and milk across the table to him for him to drink. Before, in go before going down to the dining room, she would stop in the bathroom and do her makeup something she did not do before he moved in or after he passed away. Uh, something that you should know about Betty is that she will not leave her room without a pair of sunglasses, which she frequently wears inside, and one of two large fluffy jackets. One of the jackets is almost identical to the one that Macklemore wears in the thrift shop music video, and the other is the same except leopard print. One day I was helping Betty take off her leopard print jacket and I heard something metal fall out of the pocket. It was a spoon. Out of curiosity, I checked all of her other pockets. I found five spoons, all dirty spoons 
she had picked up on her way out of the dining room. From that day forward, I checked all of her pockets before she left the dining room. And once, out of the blue, Betty said that she wanted two Doberman pinchers so that they could sleep with her. And for reference, she has a twin bed. My God, what a picture. What a picture you paint. Thank you for that. And I love that you put that as a happy moment, too. My first instinct when I read that was, this is not a happy moment. You know, this is a, this is a nursing home. How could that be a happy moment? But I, I think kind of like the, the interview with Steph, it's, I, th- I think that people, really sensitive people, and especially people who've done some work on themselves, are able to find the, the little beautiful things. But it, it's so hard sometimes to slow down enough to, to picture those things so often I think we just blast right through our day thinking oh, I gotta make money or I gotta do this or I gotta do that I'm late for this and we just stop and go oh yeah look at that look at that little thing over there that isn't that isn't that a trip but I love that that you uh, spent all that time with her and that you saw her in all her beauty and craziness that's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And anybody out there who's who's struggling, um, I hope after these last 92 minutes you realize that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.